It's been a couple of intense topics in iHeartThis these past few months, so this month, let's talk about something a bit lighter. Today on our show, I'd like to talk about one of my favorite places on the planet, Mount Desert Island, Maine. There are lots of ways to talk about a place. In this show, we'll focus on four. As a park, as a destination, as a site of pilgrimage, and as a home. You're listening to I Heart This, a podcast about unexpected gratitudes. I'm Ben Lord. Let's talk about what we love. Off the coast of Maine is an island. Okay, wait, hold on. That's not news to anybody. There are like 5,000 islands off the coast of Maine. But this island is spectacular. The only fjord on America's east coast nearly cuts the island down the middle, and huge granite domes scoured by glaciers look out over the sea, and their summits command views of all of down east Maine. If you stand on their summits at dawn, you may be the first person in the United States to see the sun for that day. Named Pemetic by its indigenous inhabitants, today the island is mostly known by a name given to it by the French explorer Samuel de Champlain in 1604. He called it L'Ile de Mont-Désert, after the treeless and deserted peaks. Anglicized, it became Mount Desert Island, or to the locals, just MDI. Now connected to the mainland by a bridge and home to Acadia National Park, Mount Desert Island is visited by more than 4 million people each year. Today I'd like to talk about how I love that island fiercely, intimately, like the way I love my closest friends. But places like people are complicated. So I can't talk about MDI without talking about tourism and national parks and about how we treat and mistreat the places we love and the places we live in and about how those places treat us. But you know, that's how we roll in I Heart This. We get behind the sunsets and the vistas and the ocean breezes to find the wonders that people often miss. So today's show comes to you like everyone's favorite team of Ninja Turtles in four parts. Let's go. Act One, Park. In one of the old pre-Kevin Costner stories about Robin Hood, the reason that Robin of Loxley becomes an outlaw has nothing to do with a murderous land grab by the Sheriff of Nottingham or unfair tax policies. In this story, a young Robin was passing through Sherwood Forest on his way to some festival, hoping to win an archery prize and maybe catch the eye of the fetching Maid Marian. But on the way, he encounters some guys in the woods who doubt that he can shoot like he says he can, and so they dare him to fire an arrow at a faraway deer. And Robin, being the world's most storied archer, hits it, of course. And that is his first crime. Not because it was a crime to shoot deer, but because it was a crime to shoot deer in Sherwood Forest, because Sherwood Forest was a park. In feudal England, 
A park was something very different than something like Acadia is today. Parks were the exclusive playgrounds of the titled lords, lands set aside for the sport, mostly hunting, of wealthy men. In Sherwood's case, for the king himself. Robin Hood stories are almost all commentaries on social injustices, and this one was no different. All over Europe, powerful people had claimed all the last wild and untrammeled places for themselves. The common people were trespassers. In that story of Robin Hood, the men in the forest who dared him to shoot a deer turned out to be wardens, basically the king's own private park rangers. And the punishment for Robin's crime was death. So the fact that when Robin escaped the wardens, he took refuge in the very Sherwood forest where he had trespassed. It was a symbol of everything that Robin Hood stood for. He had made his home in the very land that the rich had denied to everyone else. America could have easily gone the same way. Yellowstone and Yosemite and Acadia, especially Acadia, could have easily become Sherwood forests. Mount Desert Island's story went something like this. In the late 19th century, America had a new aristocracy. With some of the most massive accumulations of wealth and power the world has ever seen. And the members of this new wealthy class, the Carnegies and the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts and the Morgans and the Astors, saw the paintings of Thomas Cole and Frederick Church, who had captured the dramatic landscapes of MDI in vivid colors on enormous canvases. First, the aristocrats bought the paintings, and then they bought the landscapes themselves. Mount Desert Island became an enclave of exclusive, quote-unquote, cottages, where these families escaped their equally exclusive neighborhoods in New York. Bar Harbor, the biggest village on MDI, hosted a lane of seaside mansions that became known as Millionaire's Row. The barons and baronesses were capitalists instead of feudalists, but the rules of the game had changed very little. The rich and the powerful controlled the fate of the wild and beautiful places. They allowed or denied access to them at their whim. Wilderness belonged to Richie Rich and his cronies yet again. Robin Hood, beware. But this is where the story takes a distinctly American turn. Those of you who have listened to my love letter to America might remember that in my angsty quest for a kind of patriotism that I could believe in, I set my banner down by our national parks. It was one of the first things about our country that I felt unambiguously proud of. You see, at the same time that the robber barons were buying up Mount Desert Island, other people were proposing a brand new idea. One that, so far as I know, was unique in the world. Maybe, they suggested, maybe we can have big, beautiful wilderness parks. Maybe we could set aside big swaths of land, places to play in and pray in and appreciate for their sublime beauty. And what if they weren't just for the rich? What if, in a country struggling to become a democracy, what if these parks could be for the people? What if they could be for everyone? 
it is an idea just as radical and more uniquely American than representative government that in a world built out of no trespassing signs, some land belongs to us all. The story of almost every national park you visit is the same. Somehow, despite the seemingly insurmountable hunger of the marketplace, a small group of people, people who deeply love a place, call on the conscience of their country folk. And they point to that place they love and they say, this land, this beautiful and precious land, unique in all the world, should not be sold to the highest bidder. Yosemite, Yellowstone, the Grand Canyon, Sequoia, Glacier, in every single case, the struggle was real. There were those who wanted those lands to end up in private hands, and in every single case, there was a time when it seemed that they would. Every national park into which you set foot is a hard-won gift against the odds. Acadia National Park story offers an interesting twist. This park was protected and loved and gifted to America by some of the very people who had snatched it up in the first place. Just south of the village of Bar Harbor, before you get to the Jackson Laboratory, by the way, that's the same Jackson Laboratory that Pinky and the Brain escaped from? Anyway, just before that is a little pull-off. Now it has a Brown National Park sign for Compass Harbor, but when I lived there, it was little more than a gravel parking lot that could accommodate a half-dozen cars. If you get out of your car and follow the wide, flat trail through the woods, you'll eventually get to a fork. Go left, and you'll eventually find yourself on a rocky jetty looking out over the Porcupine Islands. But if you go right, onto the path less traveled, and wend your way through some ancient and twisted cedar trees, you'll find yourself climbing some wide granite steps up onto a tiled platform there in the middle of the woods. Trees grow up through the loosened bricks, Moss and ferns are everywhere. This is the foundation of what was once a great house. And once someone points it out to you, you can't help but imagine the chandeliers and fireplaces and what must have once been a many-windowed sunroom on the south side. This is the remains of the mansion of George B. Dorr. George was extraordinarily wealthy. His parents each came from one of the richest families in Boston. When George was young, he traveled the world, he went to Harvard, he knew the most influential people of his day. He was 15 when he first visited Mount Desert Island, just three years after the end of the Civil War. It was love at first sight, and the love of George's life. You might think that the work of founding or protecting a national park would be interesting work. But in the case of Acadia National Park, you'd be wrong. George spent decades of his life in meetings. Bank meetings, real estate closings, meeting with landowners to try and convince them to donate or sell important parcels. And meetings with the community organizations that began administering the lands that eventually would become Acadia National Park. When the Maine legislature threatened to revoke the organizational status of one of those community organizations, George caught a train to Augusta to lobby against the move. And when he realized that the only lasting protection for the places that he loved would be federal protection, he went to Washington for still more meetings. 
Such is the work of so much good in the world, isn't it? George never married. He served as the superintendent of Acadia National Park until he died in 1944. And by then, his fortune was gone. Much of it spent on one big gift to the people of the world. I tell this story in part to show how hard it was to rest this land for the people, even when the person who was doing the resting had all the wealth and power and connections that one could hope for. But it also reminds me just how easy it would have been for this place to have turned out very differently. The story of MDI could easily have been the story of a place that remained in the hands of the heirs of America's early industrial empires, but it didn't. You and I can go stand on the summit of Pemetic and look over the narrow valley and Jordan Pond below. We can wander the forests and bike the carriage trails, but only because people have worked hard, sometimes for their whole lives, to make it so. And it is not just the wealthy men like George Dorr and Rockefeller who leveraged their power and influence to build the park. Parks are not just land set aside. A national park is an ongoing project of generations. They require continual advocacy. Trails don't just happen because people walk in the woods, at least not good ones, at least not the kind that can withstand thousands of boots. Trail building is a craft that demands skill and patience, and Acadias are among the most skillfully built and lovingly maintained trails in the world. Acadia is the kind of park that we love because of rangers who have paid attention to the needs of the land and its visitors, because they close the trails when the peregrine falcons nest and direct traffic on the crowded park loop road, and because they have done the thankless work of picking up the trash left by careless guests. Acadia happens because volunteers donate their time, and because friends of the park donate their money, and because year after year, our government, which can't seem to agree on anything, renews its pledge to invest in this place. If we are lucky, people will be testing their fear of heights on the Beehive Trail when all of us are long forgotten. Acadia and her sister parks give me hope that things can be shared, despite the so-called tragedy of the commons. She is living proof that just because something is shared doesn't mean that it can't be well cared for. If you go to Acadia, you'll see. The trails are works of art. The peaks are clean. There are places that even the most disabled among us can find a spot to watch the sunrise from a mountaintop. And there are places where the natural ruggedness has been so well preserved that only the most hardy hikers will go. If you do go to Acadia, think of those people who have kept and cared for and loved that place and give thanks. Act 2. Destination. The village of Bar Harbor is probably one of the most touristy places in the world. Resting on MDI's northeast shoulder, it is the launch pad that most everyone uses to enter Acadia National Park. And tourism isn't just the basis of its economy. It kind of is the economy. 
In the summer, people pack the sidewalks elbow to elbow. The streets are lined with restaurants and ice cream parlors and shops full of tchotchkes. During the high season, there is no escape from the crush of visitors. Earlier this summer, I went in a shop on Main Street. The entire wall was covered with sweatshirts emblazoned with the words Mount Desert Island like it was a corporate logo. And there on the left was a handwritten sign taped to the wall. And it said, You are on Mount Desert Island with a hand-drawn map and an arrow pointing you are here. I can only imagine the clerk behind her little counter waiting on a queue of clueless passengers belched out of some cruise ship in the harbor for a three-hour excursion. How many times did she need to endure the question, where's Mount Desert Island, before she put up that sign? I could almost read the exasperation in her handwriting and hear her asking under her breath, why are you even here? Tourists. They crowd our favorite places, seem oblivious to the impact they are having. They buy up cheap and meaningless mementos. So often they act as if they're entitled to have a good time because they paid X amount. People tell me that tourists are good for the economy, as if enduring their presence was a necessary hardship like doing sit-ups or eating Brussels sprouts. But do we really need to endure such painful stupidity as that t-shirt with the sheep on it saying, Bahaba. I go back every year and it just does not die. Now, I'm not an economist, but I have a hard time believing that the production of thousands of identical lobster keychains is good for anyone, even if it does mean that a few college sophomores on summer break get a steady paycheck or the local restaurateurs can add some of their profits to the municipal tax base. Look, as you can probably tell, I get as frustrated with tourists as anyone, and although I sincerely mean everything I've just said about them, I love the tourists of Mount Desert Island. And so I'd like to spend Act 2 of this episode making the case that they are worthy of our deep appreciation. Yeah, I know, it's an uphill climb. We'll see how it goes here. First of all, I am a tourist. I did live on MDI for a while, but I don't live there now, and unless you've decided not to leave your hometown for the past few decades, you've been one too. Every once in a while I hear some hip 20-something who's too cool for Lonely Planet guides and plans to backpack across Africa on a shoestring argue that there's a difference between a tourist and a traveler. And yes, me from the past, I'm looking at you here. Don't try to pretend to be cool when you and I both know that you carried a wooden yoga block in that aforementioned backpack. (sighs) Anyway, what I'll say to that traveler is this. The word tourist comes from the middle French word tour, which is also the same root for such classic English words as turn, and is distantly related to other turny words from other languages like tornado, The root word actually means something like to spin something around, as if on a lathe. So tourists are literally people running around in circles. Not so smug, me from the past. I'm not done yet. Think about your own travels. Did you leave home only to return? Your circuit might take longer or wend its way through more miles, but I would argue that the difference between you and the t-shirt buying cruise ship passengers is only one of degrees. 
to say otherwise smacks of a certain kind of chauvinism. What do any of us do but turn our little circles? We leave home, we come back again. Each day we round the axis of the earth. Together we all circumnambulate the sun. We start as dust, and to dust we shall return. But to my would-be traveler, I would also say, there's nothing wrong with being a tourist. Why do we tour in the first place? I think that in our heart of hearts, even the most cartoonish, camera-toting, fanny-pack-wearing among us are leaving home for the same reasons that people sail around the world or pilot their dugout through darkest Peru. All of us want to be blown over by the beauty of the world. We want to taste adventure. We want to claim for ourselves something beyond the routines that inevitably harden around us when we stay in one place for too long. Most every one of the tourists who ended up in that t-shirt shop asking where MDI was started with a dream, not of shopping, but of finding something of themselves that they couldn't find with the same old people and places, whether they could articulate that to themselves or not. In fact, in tourists, I find much to admire, even envy. They walk down the street gawking at the sights, it's true. But would that I could look at my own town the same way. Everything fresh, everything strange and new. When we are tourists, we can recapture a little bit of that childlike wonder, a kind of instant, if temporary, youthfulness. And if you watch them carefully, if you watch their faces, when they are coming face to face with a place that you've grown accustomed to, that you have stopped seeing with the crisp clarity of novelty, tourists can wake you up to that majesty and power again without saying a word. I lived in Bar Harbor for six years, and in that time, tourists came and went like the tides. The tides in the Gulf of Maine are some of the most dramatic in the world, and that was also true for the tides of visitors. They swell in July and August so much that you can hardly move along Cottage Street. Then they ebb away, until in January most of the town is boarded up. I could ride my bike down the icy double yellow lines in the late evening without passing a single car. I loved the rhythm of it, like the whole town took in one giant breath each year. And I loved how, in the winter, I had the whole island myself. One February day, I climbed Sargent Mountain with my roommates to see a wayward snowy owl that had wandered out of its arctic home. I remember how it stood like a sentinel, its feathers buffeted by the snowy gale. And from there, we could see so many of the island's other peaks, Cadillac and Pometic and Penobscot and the bubbles, everything encased in crystal. And other than my buddies and that owl, there was not a soul in sight. To get home, we slid the whole way down the iced over trail on our backs. But in the summer, there was a different kind of beauty. Sure, there was the magic of deer fawns in the great meadow, and biking down the ledge lawn entrance into the park on that day when the cottonwoods had released their fluffy seeds into the air, and everything was so still, and the cotton seemed to levitate in the air, as if I'd somehow passed over into the land of the fae. But there were also the people, people from everywhere. I would overtake them on the trail, and after a tentative hello, 
They would tell me about what it was like to study microbiology at Tufts or be a homeschooling mom of six in Oregon or a Swede traveling the world with her teenage daughter after her husband had died. I'm not trying to make excuses for bad behavior. Tourists can be assholes, and that assholery gets amplified because there are so many of them and because they don't know the rules and customs and etiquette of the place they're visiting, and because for many of them, the unfamiliarity of new places inflames all their anxieties. And as with all people everywhere, some just don't accept the idea that there might be legitimate ways of doing things other than their own. Tourists can be selfish and entitled, they can be shallow, but I haven't lived a life free of entitlement and selfishness either. And there is an obvious irony about griping over tourists. We act as if we want them to go away so that we can enjoy the very same beauty that they came here to bask in. But there is another and less obvious irony, too. It's not just landscapes that we travel for. We also travel the world to encounter other people, to immerse ourselves in their cultures and look back on our own with new eyes. And here... In these special places like Acadia, they come to us. I've stood in the crowded summit of the Beehive in July and seen an old couple absolutely aglow with breathless delight, and the young couple silently intertwining their fingers, looking at each other instead of the mountains, and the eight-year-old girl practically levitating with pride after finishing the vertiginous trail where she came face to face with her fear of heights and pushed through to victory anyway. You can find ugliness wherever you find people, but it doesn't cancel out the beauty. This summer, in the gazebo in the Bar Harbor Town Green, someone had left a brightly painted and totally out-of-tune piano. The Town Green is kind of like the Grand Central Station of Bar Harbor. On one end of the green, people spill out of the ice cream parlors, and on the other end, they spill out of the island explorer buses that run their circuits through the campgrounds and the park. And the gazebo sits right in the middle of everything. I ended up sitting beside that piano in the gazebo one rainy afternoon while I was waiting for some companions. And I watched toddlers bang out noise in the keys with their tiny hands, and I watched a teenager tentatively stumbling through fur leaves. And I watched one young woman play Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata so brilliantly that you could hardly tell the piano was out of tune. And when I approached her afterward and told her how beautifully she'd played, she shrugged and shuffled away. And a silver-haired woman with bright lipstick played a rollicking chopsticks duet with a girl of no more than ten. It was as beautiful as the waves crashing against the rocks of Great Head. Act Three. Pilgrimage. People travel to Mount Desert Island for all kinds of reasons. Some want to drive in comfort along the Park Loop Road and take in a few sights. Some collect national parks and carry around a little blue book that looks like an oversized passport to get stamps from each one. Some want to connect with nature. Some want an experience where they can bond with their kids. And some go because their parents force them to. Some want to test themselves by cycling or paddling or climbing the hard things. There are plenty of journeys that begin with people just wanting to rest, to unwind, to feel pampered. Go to any travel agency and you'll see this kind of travel packaged up with a bow on it, 
kind of extravagant version of a day at the spa or a Netflix and chill night where the purpose is to reward yourself with some decadence for all the hard work you do in your real life. But there is another kind of reason to travel, one that's harder, maybe impossible, to package. Literature is full of journeys undertaken primarily for this other reason. Works run the gamut from Peter Matheson's The Snow Leopard to Elizabeth Gilbert's Eat, Pray, Love, from Frodo Baggins' desperate quest to destroy the One Ring to Cheryl Strayed's attempt to walk through grief to Jack Kerouac's amphetamine-fueled diatribe about life on the road. The Hero's Journey, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, Travels with Charlie, Into the Wild. Every story is different, and also, somehow, they are all the same. Whether the traveler knows it or not, they have gone out looking for themselves. We have a name for the journeys that we take for this other reason. We call them pilgrimage. The metaphor of these stories is on the nose as it can be. Life is a journey. It's the process that changes us, not the arrival. And like most big true things, we've heard it before and we call it a cliché at least until another poet comes along and tells the story fresh again. But maybe it's a cliché that we ought not to dismiss. What am I trying to say here? I think what I'm trying to say is that I suspect that hidden under our hopes to escape or to rest or to challenge ourselves, many of our journeys are undertaken for this very reason. Even if we spend our whole vacation lounging on the beach, there is this secret part of us that yearns to be transformed by our journeys, even if we're too cool to admit it. Why else would we go to such iconic places if not to be touched by adventure or love or insight or healing? Like any great destination, Mount Desert Island is the site of tens of thousands of experiments in self-discovery, people trying to break free of their small lives, even if just for a little bit, so they can see themselves and the world around them with new eyes. Maybe we are all pilgrims, all the time, bravely stepping out into the unknown, full of hope. It's a beautiful idea, but lately to me, it also seems a bit of a tragedy. I see it in people's faces, People might have come, filled with hopes for touching the sublime and having adventures, wind up settling for circling the parking lot looking for a spot and eating overpriced lobster. Maybe this tragedy is its own cliché, the flip side of the journey of self-discovery, the unsettling realization that lots of these journeys just fail to enlighten us. Who doesn't recognize that quixotic quest Spoofed in movies like National Lampoon's Family Vacation, Chevy Chase stands on the lip of the Grand Canyon muttering, Very nice, very nice. Okay, kids, back in the car. How does this happen? What's wrong with us? There's this Saturday Night Live skit where Adam Sandler parodies a tour company infomercial called Romano Tours. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I highly recommend you go find it on YouTube. It starts out like any low-budget infomercial ad, but quickly segues as Adam Sandler's character tries to manage the expectations of his prospective clients. You're still going to be you on vacation, he says. If you are sad where you are, and then you get in a plane to Italy, 
the you in Italy will be the same sad you from before, just in a new place. It's pretty hilarious, and also wonderfully insightful about how we long for transformation to be magical and easy and only ever lead to happiness. We forget the demons we all carry in ourselves, our depressions and our fears and our limitations and our loss. And I think that's part of the familiar disappointment that many people feel when they're traveling. But I think that beneath that, there's this underlying problem that makes us prone to this kind of craziness. I think that our misguided expectations of travel are a symptom of thinking about travel as something you buy. It is so easy for those of us who live in today's world to turn the things around us into commodities. And the places we visit are no different. Vacation packages and cruise line cabins and plane tickets and hotel rooms and guided tours and restaurant meals. Everything about our travel is bought and sold until the very places we are on pilgrimage to become a product that we measure up for its monetary value. We give it a rating on a five-star scale, and we write reviews, and influencers make top ten lists full of product placements. When you are in Bar Harbor, walking down the streets lined with shops hawking swag, there is no way to forget that Mount Desert Island has been turned into just such a commodity. Maybe this is, in the end, why we are so uncomfortable with tourism. Maybe in our lucid moments we can see how easy it is to reduce something of indescribable beauty into keychains. We recognize in others our own tendency to collect photographs of our experiences instead of having experiences. Our tendency to look at the place we are in through the screen of our phone. I think that deep down we know that if we do this to the places we most treasure, it does something, not only to the places, but to us. There is something afoot in our world right now that is accelerating the reduction of our experiences into things that are bought and sold. It has to do with so-called technology and our phones and social media and the companies that have found a new kind of capitalism, one that reduces even our attention into metrics that can be monetized. It has to do with all of those things, and it also has to do with us and how willing we are to surrender our attention to them and how willing we are to exchange the pursuit of happiness for the illusion of buying it. But that's a lie. You might be able to buy a room with comfortable sheets and a view of the ocean, but you cannot buy a feeling of awe. You can buy a ticket to drive up to the summit of Cadillac Mountain, but you can't buy the feeling of having your heart broken open by the colors of the sunset. You can't buy the things that prompted you to travel in the first place. Relaxation or healing or adventure or insight. Pilgrimage can never be bought. Of course, commerce happens on the road to Mecca. But it is incidental to the journey. I think again of that sign in the t-shirt shop, you are on Mount Desert Island, and isn't that just the way? The more we try to buy our way into paradise, the less we are able to recognize it when we are there. Is there a way to prevent this? 
Are we doomed to succumb to the hypnotic drone of commerce? Is there a way to inoculate ourselves against it? I think there is, but I don't think it's easy. I don't think it's ever been easy. Awe and joy and meaning aren't things that just happen to us. Certainly they require grace, but they also require effort. It is the work of turning our attention to what is awesome and joyous and meaningful. The most beautiful vistas will not move us if we spend our mountaintop moments posing for selfies and posting them to our feeds. Do you want to buy joy? There's only one way to pay for it. Pay attention. And you can't just pay for it when you arrive at the destination. The pilgrimage isn't about the relic at the journey's end or about the cathedral in which it is housed. The journey doesn't even start when you lace up your boots on that first day on the trail. It starts before. When you first decide that the journey is something that you want. As Rolf Potts wrote, Vagabonding starts now. Even if the practical reality of travel is still months or years away, vagabonding begins the moment you stop making excuses and start saving money and begin to look at maps with the narcotic tingle of possibility. If Potts is right, then pilgrimage isn't even about the journey. It's just a commitment to letting the world in and being curious about when it surprises you. And if that's true, and I think it is, then let's not wait to start paying attention when we finally hit the trails. If you start now, then when you finally reach a place like Acadia, you won't be rushed. You won't be ticking experiences off a to-do list. You won't be unconsciously measuring the quality of your experience against how much you've paid for it. Maybe you might even be a little less afraid of having moments that are difficult or boring or lonely while you're there, because they are part of the journey too, and they have their own lessons to teach. Pay attention now. Be curious now about this person, this place, this experience here. This is your life, no matter what you paid for it. Act 4. Home. In the summer of 2020, Maine opened its COVID-restricted borders to visitors, but only ones from New Hampshire and Vermont. And since we lived in Vermont, we immediately booked a room at our kids' favorite little motel at the corner of Eden and Mount Desert Street. We had to sign an affidavit testifying that we really were from Vermont in order to get our room. I remember the weather was gorgeous, and I remember that everything felt surreal Places that were always, always, always bustling with summer crowds were empty. I stood at the summit of Champlain Mountain for an hour without seeing another soul. I walked from there, down Huguenot Head, and past the Tarn, and up the Great Stair to the summit of Door Mountain, and through the Gorge, and over Cadillac, and down the other side to Bubble Pond, a hike across some of the most beautiful and most visited places on one of the most visited islands on the continent. And I saw no more than a dozen people. 
and most of them for only a few minutes as I walked past the parking lot on top of Cadillac Mountain. But that walk was still crowded with memories, with friends I knew and now have not seen in years, with adventures I only remember parts of because they happened so long ago, with the ghosts of my own children from when they were younger than they are now and first climbed those trails. I do not live on Mount Desert Island anymore, but there is a way in which it is still a home for me. Every time I go, I'm almost bowled over by a powerful feeling of recognition. I think the closest word for it, in English anyway, is nostalgia. But that's not quite right. I mean, this feeling is like that ocean wave that you're not ready for and knocks you into the sand. It's like suddenly standing face to face with my younger self, a self with different dreams and different fears, but I still recognize as me. In French, if you want to say that you remember, you say, je me souviens. It is a reflexive verb. That means it's something that you have to do to yourself. The verb, souvenir, is to remember, and it comes from the roots su, meaning under, and venir, meaning to come. So, in some ways, to remember is to come under, to bring yourself under, as if memory were an ocean, and you were plunging into its depths to see the sunken shipwrecks of your past. That island will be the final resting place of a great armada of my memories, even when the neuronal circuits in my brain don't have enough voltage to recall them anymore. Think of all the memories that must be there, left by all of its millions of visitors, back to the very first ones some 7,000 years ago. People who, just like I did, stood on its rocky peaks to watch the rising sun. I Heart This is written, edited, and produced by me, Ben Lord. Our logo was designed by Bryony Morrow Cribs. Our theme song was composed by Lynn Music and is used with permission from neosounds.com. You can listen to our show and read the full script of each episode on our website, iheartthispodcast.com, and check us out on Facebook at iheartthispodcast. iheartthis is small but mighty. It's hard to tell for sure, but our analytics indicate that we have just under 100 unique listeners every month, and we'd love to spread that love even further. You could help us by sending your favorite I Heart This episode to people who you think would like them. Share us on social media or write a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love it if you told your friends about us. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, be kind, be curious, and be thankful. <laughs>